Welcome to our Voices of Africa podcast, brought to you by Africa Practice, a strategic advisory firm supplying insights and advocacy solutions to corporations, investors, governments, and foundations in Africa. In a world with complex and interdependent challenges, we take the guesswork out of business engagement. We enable our clients to see more clearly in order to drive sustainable and equitable development. Hello and welcome to this edition of Voices of Africa. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Mozilla Ntenjani. Mozilla is the Head of Stakeholder Affairs at Exaro. Exaro is one of South Africa's largest coal producers, listed on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. But it's more than that, isn't it, as Mozilla will tell us now. Hi Mozilla, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Marcus, and thank you very much for having me on the show. It's my pleasure. We've been trying to organize this for a few weeks now, and you've been racing around the continent. I know you're just back from Durban today. We're delighted to have you. I was just making a brief introduction to Exaro there, pointing out that you're one of the biggest coal producers in South Africa, but you've got a broader portfolio than that that extends into other mineral assets, iron ore and zinc, I think, where you're a minority shareholder in two businesses, both in South Africa. And since 2020, you've had a really fast expanding renewable energy portfolio since the acquisition of Synergy. I think I've pronounced that correctly. So at current capacity, you've got around 700 gigawatts of of wind power or there or thereabouts. 220. I wish we had had 700 gigawatts. (laughs) My apologies. I've I've, I've (laughs) taken that off your website wrongly. I got the wrong figure. 229. Uh, There you have it. Maybe it's the 70 megawatts, which I can talk to later in terms of a project that we're going to be developing. Well, let me stop introducing Exaro and let you introduce Exaro. That's the much better <laughs> course of action. Before we do that, introduce yourself, please, where you grew up and what studies you pursued, the career path you've had that's taken you now to Exaro, where I think you've been for 10 years. That's right. It's going to be 10 years in May of 2023. I joined Exaro, it was the 1st of May 2013, coming from Robafuk and Platinum, another great company to, to work for, community-based company, which is in the stable of the Robafuk and Holdings. As you may know, or you may or may not know, there is a community in the Northwest Platinum Belt, and that's a, an exemplary community in terms of how they've managed their commercial assets from their social assets. And the community is located on land or about 40 by 30 kilometers wide and width with some prime platinum and other mineral assets on that land. And they've been around for several hundred years in that location. And it's a community that we all look up to in terms of how community can partner with capital for social development. But perhaps a little bit more about myself and Exaro. I'm a South African by birth, born in the dynamic township of Soweto, grew up in Soweto, uh, went to school there in primary and secondary school. But then my high school, I spent at a, a private school called LaSalle College in uh, Rudiport in Florida. Uh, that's where I finished my matriculation, which is the equivalent of grade 12, and went on to university. In deciding what to study at university, as all teenagers back then, we really wanted to be doctors, but uh, I also came across engineering, and that presented a challenge in terms of which faculty of engineering I would join, and uh, I went through a decision matrix of what would align with my character, which was 
you know, when I look back, jack of all trades, master of none. And mining engineering then appealed to me. I was fortunate to then get a, a scholarship from Anglo-American. I must also admit that at the time I was 17 years old, I didn't know what to expect in terms of university. I was very nervous. So when they had a program called pre-university bursary scheme, I was very excited to enroll in that. And uh, when you then succeed on that program, you then enroll for first year and subsequent years at university. On completion of my degree, I then worked for Anglo-American Gold and Uranium Division, as it was called then. And for those listening, they will immediately tell how old I am. Because Anglo, Anglo Gold today is Anglo Gold Ashanti. It's evolved significantly since then. And I worked for about five years, went up the ranks, got my government certificates. And then I had a yearning to be in financial services. And I then joined a Rand Merchant Bank in the investment banking division and worked in several areas, including corporate finance, debt on the debt side, as well as a very unique opportunity to be the executive PA to the CO of the parent company to RMB being first rand. That was Paul Harris. That was a really great 15 months to spend in his office. But despite the time that I did enjoy after four years in investment banking, I still had a yearning to be back in mining. And when you're a VITS graduate, there's an expression called once a miner, always a miner. It doesn't matter where you go to, even when you die. And so I then joined Goldfields and I enjoyed my time there for about two years, which included a stint in Ghana, looking at the expansion of the Demang mine. I also, after that, spent some time with Deutsche Bank to work for an international bank in South Africa, though, also in corporate finance. At the end of that two years, that's when I joined Royal African Holdings which had just been established from the merger of Rob Afuken Resources, which was the community's holding of the resources assets, such as the investment in Impala, the investment in Afuken Royal Platinum, which is now called Rob Afuken Platinum. And then the other entity was Rob Afuken Finance, which was established to diversify the, the asset base. And uh, when they were merged, the entity was then called Rob Afuken Holdings, where I looked after part of their mining assets. After a period of six years, which included the creation and listing Rob Buffett Platinum on the Jonas Stock Exchange, that's when I joined Exaro in 2013 in the current role, which has actually evolved over the past nine years that I've been there. But stakeholder relationships has been at the center of, of the role. And this is where I find myself today. Great. Well, thanks for that. That potted history, really interesting. And like you, I, I share a great admiration for Royal Bafokeng. We had their CEO on a panel discussion we hosted a few years ago now. And that community model of community ownership and community investment is worthy of, of replication by, by lots of other absolutely. mining companies. And traditional communities, communities yeah. as well. Yeah. When I was having a look at the Exaro website and preparing for this, I noticed a constant vein running through the site and around communities. It's obviously a, a vitally important consideration in the whole of South Africa's energy transition and the decarbonisation plan that the government has set out. It's very much about a just transition. So yes, the imperative to decarbonise, but to do so in a way that has consideration for social justice. South Africa has got very high unemployment rate. I mean, I think one of the highest globally. Mm. We've got a real problem with lack of energy access. Load shedding is a term that everyone now associates firmly with South Africa as well. So I want to talk to you about your approach to the stakeholder relations broadly, but community specifically. 
in a moment. But just before I do, let's stick with Zaro, its corporate strategy. I mentioned for our audience that you're a top five coal producer. Coal is, as all of our audience know, everyone knows now, one of the single largest sources of, of global temperature increases. It's a real imperative for humanity to reduce our dependence on this commodity, on coal, and for all the reasons that we know. You as a business have committed to a transition, a transition to diversify away from coal. I mentioned the acquisition that you've made in the renewable energy company, full ownership now, and, and those wind projects that um, I got the megawattage wrong for and you were able to correct me. But tell us about that energy transition and how you manage that, what the timetable is and what the future looks like, 2030 mm. being an obvious milestone for Paris, but 2050 yeah. too. Yeah. So I think you started off by painting the, you know, a picture of the current state in South Africa in terms of social, political, environmental and economic status. And that's a, a very valid relevant starting point in talking about Exaro's strategy for a number of reasons. The first one being that as one of the largest coal producers, we are actually a critical part of the value chain of electricity generation in South Africa. Our volumes of coal are largely directed towards ESCOM. Out of 45 million tons, about 70% of that goes to ESCOM. And that volume of coal supports about 30% of ESCOM's electricity generation. And why that is important is that a strategic decision that we make as a company to transition away from coal has to consider the social and economic impact of that transition. And so it's one that we are embarking on in a very, very careful and very responsible way. And the manner in which we've gone about it was firstly, I think, the foresight of our previous founder and CEOs, recognizing the changes that they were seeing in uh, in Europe already, in Germany, which, you know, Europe recently has become a 30% market share in terms of our supply of coal as a result of the energy crisis. This goes back really? to... Just, just in the last year? If you look at our first six months results that we posted, the increase in volumes to Europe have increased significantly from low single digit to, to quite high numbers, like I've mentioned. And these are numbers that we last saw in early 2000. And that's an important consideration in that, you know, we could see this change coming. And this is when the investment in renewables started in 20, 2009 to 2010, which eventually manifested in synergy, producing and delivering 229 megawatts of wind energy from the Eastern Cape. And it is now the foundation of future growth in renewable energy. So that's just looking at what do we pivot towards or what, what can we invest in to diversify the business. But coming back to what I said about the importance of coal as well was to look at the domestic market in terms of current and future needs, in terms of ESCOM, but also looking at export markets and how the trend was evolving around the use of coal in uh, both today and going to the future. And there continues to be power stations being built, although looking for higher quality coal. We then looked at our resources and reserves. And in actual fact, you know, we decided that we are best positioned to continue to supply coal to both ESCOM in terms of our long-term contracts, as well as supplying high quality coal and changing the quality mix in order to supply our 
offshore customers. And that meant that we would be the last man standing. And by higher quality coal, I mean it's coal that has less impurities, much higher energy content than what you would find for other, for, for instance, for the ESCOM coal, which is built around a specific technology that takes a specific coal. So does that mean you have early retirement of the less good quality assets? Is that That's right. Yeah. So the, the expression stranded assets is generally applicable. In this case, we specifically said that we needed to avoid putting high quality coal into that stranded asset category. And what gets left in the ground will be coal of a lesser quality, of which there isn't much. But, you know, to the extent that we may need to continue with coal-based electricity, the coal is there. And that's an argument South Africa has always put, that we have vast resources of coal that we can continue to make use of in order to uh, respond to our energy challenges. And so to then continue with the story of our transition, it is, so it's firstly looking at the coal business and how that can help us take a step forward and a step upwards in terms of transition without sacrificing the coal business. Having invested in the renewables energy business, we've established a foundation upon which we can grow further. But we also then challenged ourselves to say, given our capabilities in mining, what else can we grow into that can make use of these capabilities? And this is where we're looking at minerals in such as copper, Uh, manganese and bauxite. They have the same mining characteristics as coal being bulk commodities. Uh, We believe that we can develop the necessary capabilities in terms of understanding the markets using the knowledge that we've learned from coal in terms of our market to resource strategy. And so the whole transition strategy then is looking at, if you look at from a revenue basis, that as coal revenue peaks following the capital investment in the past three years, three to five years, as that core revenue peaks and begins to taper down, we would like to see revenues from renewables as well as minerals growing. And at some point, there will be a, take, a crossover point where core revenues will be at some point, I think by 2030, we said they'll be at about 40%. And then revenue from minerals and, and energy will be the, the balance at, at 60%. And then beyond 2030, from an investment perspective, we'll see more of their revenue coming from less carbon-intensive businesses. So does that mean no new investment in, in coal projects beyond 2030 and progressively over, I assume it's a 20-year period till 2050, coal falls yes, out of your portfolio? Yeah. That's right. We have made that declaration that we will not be investing new capital in coal. For the assets that we have, these assets will continue to have a life about 20 to 30 years with uh, long-term contracts with ESCOM, and particularly given the fact that the energy mix in South Africa will continue to have coal, and that's going to be the coal that we'll be supplying to the power stations where we have contracts with ESCOM. Thank you. That's really helpful. I'm aware that the presidency has been leading a drive to accelerate power sector reforms with initiatives launched forget if it was earlier this year or last year, to enable independent power producers to produce their own power up to 100 megawatts. I think there's an initiative being floated to remove that cap altogether. So it looks like we're seeing a a real acceleration of of reforms there to enable 
more independent producers of power to come into the sector and to produce power in a decentralized manner, sort of diversity of ownership. I know from some of the conversations that um, that I've had with investors that there's a real appetite from uh, private capital, from institutions, to have exposure to uh, South Africa's energy market. And the plan that the government has put together, which I think is hinged on the IRP, I think the document's called the IRP, which was presented in Sharm el-Sheikh in the form of this just energy transition plan. So it was initiated at COP26 with a commitment of $8.5 billion from the EU, the US, the UK, amongst others. But I think just a few weeks ago, the investment plan was launched formally there following cabinet approval. So quite exciting, the the plans. I'm, I'm told, I haven't read the plan myself, but I'm told it's a world-class document and other countries like Indonesia and India will be looking to replicate some of the content within that plan. Are you genuinely excited now as a consequence of the opportunities that will be availed to, to companies like yourself to be direct investors in, in renewable energy in particular? No, we are. And in fact, our goal is to invest by 2030 to build up to about 1.6 gigawatts of renewable energy. Now, that's a lot of energy and it's not a lot of time between now and 2030. Mm. But given the changes that you alluded to in terms of removing the cap in as far as the, the regulatory requirements for a new installation of renewables, that's going to help in expediting that growth, not just for Xara, but for, for the country. We, as a country, we need to install about 6.5 gigawatts per year. And yeah. you know, experts say that's equivalent to what we've installed in the past 10 years. Yeah. So there's a huge sense of urgency. Uh, and, and that is necessary because of the energy supply gap that is going to be facing us in a couple of years' time. I mean, the, the current load shedding is already an indication of that. And the capital that is being made available means that that's something that we, we can get on with much quicker than we could have in the past. But I think what's also exciting for me is that the capital markets have actually matured to be able to provide the capital that's needed to, to achieve this growth. But it's not an insignificant sum, is it? I, I was reading it's, it's $100 billion or thereabouts over the next five years um, to keep yeah. the plan. Significant sum of money. I mean, that $8.5 billion is is a drop in, in that big ocean. Yeah, that's right. It is great to see that there's appetite from the capital markets. I know the capital markets are an important stakeholder for you because your, your role as head of stakeholder relations at, at Ixaro extends from really grassroots communities right up to the heady heights of the capital markets, wherever they yeah, may try. be. Yeah. I wanted to speak to you about the capital markets, investor sentiment. We've touched on it a little bit in the context of the renewable energy opportunities and the regulatory reforms that are happening in South Africa. I'm interested to know how your investors have, have responded to your transition and how they start to value a business that is, on one hand, a traditional resources dirty fuel business, and on the other hand, this portfolio of of renewable projects, and then the plans to diversify further, certainly within South Africa and perhaps even into the rest of Africa. It's not clear to me. I know at the moment your portfolio is is exclusively South Africa. How have those conversations been going with investors? I suppose it's reflected in your your share price. And and how has the nature of those conversations changed? I'm interested to hear over the last five years, as, as all investors have become sort of more climate aware. I wonder if you could shed some light on that. 
Sure. I mean, I think I've been pleasantly surprised by the constructive engagement from our current shareholders and uh, as well as potential new investors. And the big driver around the constructive engagement from a shareholder perspective is the school of thought that says that, well, Exara has been operating these assets for many years. And we they look at our ESG performance. And amongst our co-peers, we're amongst the best performers. So looking at just ESG index score as a, as a proxy, they say, well, we'd prefer that you actually continue to manage these responsibly. And in the expression of COP26, phase down responsibly. And that's a loaded expression, yeah. especially from... We know a, how contentious uh, <laughs> that language is, yeah. We know but, how contentious I mean, it, that language it, 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 But from a South African perspective, I'm also alluding to the just transition, that a an immediate closure of coal mine, given the significance of coal mining in South Africa, will will lead to huge social devastation of social uh, of social context and and livelihoods and the economy. And so, what investors are engaging us on is understanding what is our transition plan, over what period, what are our targets. So they are really engaging us to ensure that we make commitments to transitioning and stick to those commitments and are transparent in terms of communication of those targets mm-hmm. and, and objectives. At the same time, you know, investors are also looking for yield and return on investment, mm-hmm. especially at a time when the, the U.S. interest rates as a proxy for investment were, were as low as they were. And uh, commodities was where you, you would get the yield that you're looking for. And Exara has been a dividend-paying company since its establishment. Our dividend yield is in the double-digit areas. So there's that consideration as well. That And, and I think it, it works for both parties, the investor on the one hand and ourselves on the other, in terms of saying, well, we are having a conversation and we're all looking in the same direction in terms of what needs to be done from a managing of emissions and climate change. At the same time, we do need to make sure that we perform well as a business, continue to generate a return for investors, because we're actually on this long-term journey together, both starting starting off as a coal mining company and how we're going to be transitioning into a new company going into the future, and they will stick with us. So that's something that has been quite pleasing for me. You must feel under pressure each day to accelerate that transition, given the stigma that attaches today to coal. I wonder how you manage that in, in the communities. I'm thinking specifically around Pomalanga, where you've got projects, and the Waterberg as well. As you mentioned earlier, big, sizable communities dependent on the mines that you operate there for, for jobs and, and livelihoods. Can you tell us a little bit more about the plan for those communities and, and the next generation? Of those communities? So there is pressure and there's agency to transition as quickly as we can. But we have to balance that with immediate needs of community and country. From a community perspective, I think in the first instance, the conversations that we are having and the voices that we're hearing from our community is the need to address the issue of poverty and unemployment before we can even introduce the concept of climate change and the need to reduce emissions. Not to say that it doesn't come into the conversation, but it's not the first item on the agenda when we engage. 
Our responsibility as a company is to understand how climate change will manifest in communities that are, you know, from a climate perspective, are severely vulnerable. And so the urgency is then actually how do we respond to the current needs such that we then build a foundation where we can begin to have a conversation about the future and how climate change will manifest. And so sitting here today, I'm happy to say that the board approved our social impact strategy, which is looking largely at, firstly, how we shift the narrative, as I'd like to call it, in South Africa from poverty, unemployment, and inequality, which I take as a very passive and reactive narrative, to one where we need to talk about skills and capability, economic well-being, which then results in social progress and uplifting of people's dignity. I find that much more proactive and beginning to think of this is what we need to do to be able to ensure that we, we build a very good foundation for communities to be able to adapt to climate effects. And in different parts of the country, climate change will have different effects. Uh, yeah. We need to ensure that we build local businesses that will continue to thrive long after coal has stopped in another 10 to 15 years' time. And I think given where coal is at the moment, with the fortunes and misfortunes of the energy crisis, depending on which side you're looking at it, uh, mm. coal prices are trading quite high, providing for very for good profits, which must then be reinvested in new businesses, but also need to be invested in development of communities as well. Tell us about those, those reinvestments of, of the profits that you're making from these bumper prices in coal. Clearly, you've got a portfolio of wind power. And you spoke earlier about your ambitions to, to grow that. Are there other areas in, in the renewable um, space that you'll be looking at? I often say that our what we call our sustainable growth and impact strategy has got a number of goals, about five goals, two of which in the first sense is about growth. We need to grow and how we're going to grow will be in renewables as well as in new minerals, as I've indicated earlier, copper, mm. manganese, and, uh, and, and bauxite. The other important goal is decarbonization. And we are investing in the decarbonization as, and as far as we can of the current business. So we're looking at decarbonizing a coal mine. And yeah. obviously that speaks to scope one and scope two. Uh, scope one in terms of the manner in which we operate the mines from a fuel consumption, which is the largest emitter, given that we're an open-cast mine, heavily mechanized. The 70 megawatts, which you mistook as the 700 gigawatts, I wish, <laughs> is the Just 70 my ignorance about wattage. <laughs> the 70 megawatts is the installation of a renewable energy solution at our flagship mine, which will immediately replace a significant portion of the current electricity that we're taking from ESCOM, as well as contribute to about a 12% cost reduction. And so that's where we're investing in the first instance. And as we make those investments in renewables, we'll also be looking at how do we ensure that communities that, that operate you know, in proximity of our operations also get the benefit of that, uh, amongst other benefits that they will be getting from the operation. And then from a, a growth in minerals, that's an M&A strategy. And we are looking at opportunities in South Africa, particularly from a manganese perspective, as well as in the rest of the continent in terms of copper, 
and, uh, and bauxite. And then I also want to talk about how we currently investing in community and our intentions going forward. Now looking at the impact side of the sustainable growth and impact. So it's sustainable growth plus sustainable impact. And firstly, it's, it's a deliberate choice of words in that sustainable impact is what will lead to sustainable growth. And that's going to be the philosophy wherever we invest, be it in a, a new acquisition in South Africa or anywhere else in the world where we may find opportunity, both in renewable energy and in minerals. And it will be impact, which is long-term, aligned to the life of the operation that we're going to be creating and investing in, and specifically looking at the needs of those communities and working in partnership with government in the first instance, who will have jurisdiction, as well as any other partners that can help in enabling an installation of an impact project at scale. That's great to hear. I want to delve a little bit onto community and and partnerships specifically. One of the observations that I've made over the last 10 years is it's a really positive development in my view. It's the proliferation of intersectional partnerships and intersectoral alliances. So collaborations between industry peers, between different sectors within industry, and with civil society and with government too. And it seems very clear to me that these type of partnerships, well-constituted, well-delivered, deliver far greater impact than any individual company can do on its own. You're also chair, I know, of the board of of Impact Catalyst. And partnerships, PPPs um, for social impact is very much at the heart of the mission of of that initiative. Tell us about that initiative, where Xaro is is a founding member, I believe, and you're the Mm. current chair. And tell us about the approach presumably drawing on your experience from Royal Bafokeng as well, about how you approach community engagement, community consultation, and making sure that community have a a real say and a real stake in the project as you design them and then execute them. Quite a mouthful there. I hope I'll be able to talk talk to each of those points. So maybe starting off then with the impact catalyst, because I think that talks to your reference to intersectional partnerships and how it came to be. And it was as a result of the still continuing frustration of the mining industry to implement what we call social and labor plans. And these are regulated social investment initiatives that are associated with the the mining rights. And so there's there's a huge regulatory risk to not implementing those. But the challenge is that even where you find you know, mining operators operating within short distance of each other or in some instances contiguous to one another in terms of the location of the operations. They approach those investments individually, despite that they may be serving the same community or communities close to one another. And that has resulted in the past 10 to 15 years in very small and localized initiatives, which today are hard to trace in terms of the difference that they have made. And the, the scale of those projects is also limited by the fact that each of these companies, we all acting individually because we want to be recognized by and acknowledged by the regulator. And we want each of our brands to be recognized in terms of what mm-hmm. we've delivered. But the projects are very short-lived. And because we, we're not acting in concert, we, we keep doing the same things over and over again. And the real empowerment of communities doesn't happen. 
because the focus is largely on compliance so that I can get on with my job of mining. And so there isn't also that partnership with, with community. And so the impact catalyst was about how do we aggregate the various resources of mining companies, but also pulling together resources of other partners. And we've got the World Vision as one of our partners. We've got CSRR and IDC as two great government agencies. And we continue to be joined by other entities and recently entities like ESCOP. And at, at different levels, it could be at a provincial level and the likes of Cecil. So I think what you're beginning to pick up there is the drive and the initiative from the mining industry to collaborate for impact. And that platform, as we call it, then partners with provincial government where there are large clusters of mining to give effect to, to impact at scale. So We've seen significant growth in the impact catalyst in the past two years since establishing the first chapter in one of our provinces in Limpopo, which is looking at a large, you know, large platinum mine by Anglo Platinum and a large coal mine by Xara. And we've got a large platinum mine by Ivan Platts. In Pumalanga, you've got a cluster of coal mining companies. In the Northwest, there's an opportunity around a cluster of gold mines and platinum mines. In the Northern Cape, cluster of mining companies around the iron ore and manganese. And what this is going to lead to is that pooling together of resources, which would have been directed at individual social and labor plans, but rather being pooled towards a regional project that can benefit the whole community over a much longer period of time. It's great to hear that there's more collaboration between between mining companies and with civil society organizations as well. And in this case, yeah. you mentioned regional governments. Yeah, yeah. great. Exaro has informed that practice and and the impact catalyst is informing Exaro's practices. So it's, it's mutually That's right. Important. Yeah, absolutely. I had in the last series of this podcast, I had uh, Hilaire Diara from Barrick Gold speaking to us. He's the VP um, for sustainability, or at least he was when we spoke. I think he's just taken on a commercial role, a general manager role. But we spoke at some length about the work that, in his case, his employer, Barrick, was involved in sponsoring young graduates through their education, through university, and then and then into the workforce. We talked about the relative, and I say relative because it's improved considerably over the last um, decade or so, absence of African leaders at the helm of mining companies. As I say, mm. I don't think it's, it's certainly not as pronounced as it used to be. And we're seeing many more women in the top jobs, which is great to see. What's been your own experience as, as a young mining engineer entering the workforce? How well did you feel catered for both in terms of your education and schooling and then getting into the workforce? I know that you're involved with one of your alma maters in mentoring and providing professional development support. I'd like to get your views on, on what more you think the industry specifically, the mining industry, can be doing to um, grooming good quality leadership that is well-versed in all of these complex issues that now are part and parcel of mining. I think the mining industry has been at the forefront of development in South Africa. I mean, I myself am a product, if I can call myself that, of a development program that was started by mining companies in the 90s. It was called the pre-university bursary scheme. And in particular, it, recognizing the quality, which was unfortunately a poor quality of education for 
black kids, it provided a pre-university bursary scheme to, to provide that bridge from school to university. Yeah. And it provided that in both the, the science and commerce fields uh, of, of, of university. And each year they would take, you know, most of the top universities in South Africa. So it wasn't just VIT where I graduated, but also UCT as well as Natal. And it was a, a very formal program and there were high expectations for you to succeed. And it was at a time when there was also a distinction between university and technical. And if you weren't successful at university, you'd be given an opportunity at technical. So you weren't discarded because of, of lack of success in, in university. And I think that was a good foundation for the development of some of the leaders you see today, the black leaders that you see today in mining. And there may be in mining, there may be in other areas, and some of them are entrepreneurial, uh, have gone the entrepreneurship route. Unfortunately, that's a program that was discontinued for, I think, political reasons. But we're beginning to see now the need for that, and not just in mining, but across the, the whole economy. And so today, I'm also a member and I've been president of South African Institute of Mining and Metallurgy. And we're seeing this need for continued education and development of leaders. And we're not talking leaders only from a positional perspective. I think leadership from a role in the industry and the expertise that is required. And uh, within the SAIMM, we have established an ESGS committee, Environmental, Social, Governance and Sustainability Committee, for exactly that reason, to empower members of the industry with the required knowledge to be able to engage effectively on these issues of ESG and responsible mining. And it doesn't end there. I'm also involved with uh, another program which now is looking at leadership at the school level. And this is the student support program. And this is a very special one for me because recognizing the continued deterioration of public schooling, you know, private schooling continues to thrive, but only amongst a few handful of schools. And those schools have actually also partnered with us in terms of providing access to high-performing kids coming from the poorer schools to actually continue their high school education in these schools. And what we found is that South Africa continues to have so much talent at a young age. And taking a gifted child, providing them an opportunity in a school, top-class school, and if I can mention some of these schools, like Michael House, St. David's, St. Anne's, so a combination of both girls and boys schools. Those children have gone on to be leaders in those schools, such as prefects, head boys, head girls. They have excelled significantly academically and sports and have gone on to choose careers where they have outperformed and, and are standout citizens and have even come back to give back in this program. And so what that has taught me is that, you know, leadership is something that we need to start early from school, but it requires the right context for leadership development, such as what we're seeing in terms of, you know, taking a child who's got the potential, they just need the right context for them to really unleash their capability and competency. And we've got many examples, and hopefully one day you'll be able to interview one of them. We've got many examples of, of these kids that have excelled, boys and girls. And I'll tell you what, the girls are kicking butt. 
<laughs> girls are I've kicking got butt. Two girls of my own, they kick butt. <laughs> <laughs> so, so do I. I have two girls as well, and I think I think I can safely say they take after their mom and some real intelligence. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's great to hear of those kids that you reference who've been performing so well in those great schools that, that you reference. Yes, it's a very big problem because the public education system in South Africa has deteriorated over mm. over the last decade, I think. Yeah. So uh, more initiatives for collaboration between, between schools and the public system and opportunities for yeah. who wouldn't otherwise be able to access it to, to gain access to and with, with digital technologies there's so much more that private schools can do to avail yeah. some of their resources well, it's great to hear that it, yes and you're passionate as you speak about that so i'm pleased i asked you about that subject we have one final question that we we traditionally ask our guests and i'm going to put that question to you now if i may I'm interested to hear what you're either reading or listening to, or any book that has inspired your worldview and that you'd like to recommend, Mozilla. So one of the things I listen to quite often are podcasts, and I, I, I absolutely yeah. love and there are several of them that I listen to. My favorite one is The Economist. And then I listen also to the McKinsey, The Strategy Room. But in terms of books, I haven't read a book whole year since the last December so thank goodness December's finally come upon us and uh, I'm just guilty I know how much reading you do <laughs> in your role so exactly so most of my reading is really around just getting through the board packs and the exco packs yeah. right and but I've just picked out two books that I'm hoping to read this holiday the first one is Faith Versus Fact and it's probably an old book mm-hmm. uh, by Jerry A. Coyne and I'm quite intrigued by that and looking forward to reading that. And then the other one is one that I, I got as a gift a while back. And the, I'm sure like many other listeners here, we, we all accumulate books with this hope that we'll have time on the beach to read them. <laughs> so it's time to dust them off. So the second one is The Map and the Territory by Ellen Greenspan. It's the first time I'm reading an economist book. So I can't wait to see how I feel about it and uh, if I if I do finish it. But usually the, the good test of whether I'll finish a book is paging through it and seeing how it's written in terms of small print or large print. Well, <laughs> to resign the small print. I can't exactly. Yeah. So with both of these, there's hope that I will finish them. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, thank you for those recommendations. I'm a big podcast fan like yourself. I can recommend, and it's not a loaded recommendation, it's just genuinely very good quality with very good quality guests, but a Bloomberg Zero podcast, which is around the energy transition. And yeah. I listened to a couple of really good pieces, including one on food systems, which I'm hopeful I'm going to have a guest on to discuss over the course of the next months, the reforms that need to happen to how we produce food. Globally, which is a big source of carbon emissions, as we know. Yeah, yeah. It's been fantastic to speak to you. It's been really great to get an insider's perspective on the complexities, the challenges, the trade-offs involved in a country as important as South Africa in its energy transition, and to hear how you're managing those trade-offs with that balanced portfolio and the commitments that you're making in diversifying the portfolio that you have. I wish you well on your journey. You don't need my good wishes. You're doing very well as a business. And um, the environment, I hope, is becoming increasingly conducive for you to continue with the acceleration of the, that transition plan in the way that uh, we discussed, you know, the energy sector reforms that are happening as we speak. 
we're looking forward to our own transition. I think it's a it's an exciting journey ahead. Uh, it won't be without its challenges, but I think we we certainly are fit for those. Thank you for shedding light on the arc of a just transition. It was um, it was great to speak to you. Thank you very much, and all the best. Thank you for tuning into a Voices of Africa podcast this week. Voices of Africa is a forum where Africa's leading experts weigh in on cross-sectional topics affecting the continent. Experts share their views on how we can unlock greater value that will benefit industry, government, and communities. For more of our insights, visit our website or subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Views on Africa, in the description.